So here we are, April the 20th, 2017, lecture discussion number 280 on the book of Romans, which is actually Romans 5, as we have been for a long time. And Romans 5 is really Genesis 2, 3, and 4, but you already knew that. I just repeated for the vast Internet audience. So every so often, I must reread what I've written, and that's what I did this week in order to ensure some sort of closure on issues that I have been addressing. As you know, my well-deserved reputation uh, is that I am more interested in gathering the questions than arriving at the answers, to which I'm clearly guilty. I love the questions. In my defense, the answers are resultants from the questions. And my favorite mathematical equations back in college, uh, those equations were resultants and equilibrants, which is a vectoring calculation. For some odd, unexplainable reason, I just was drawn to opposing forces that collided and then figuring out what the aftermath was. If, if they hit dead on and they were equal forces, what happened to the energy? Where did it go? If it hit at an angle, like a car wreck, for example, where did the impact send both vehicles? Uh, the math of that fascinated me, and I have been that way ever since. So, anyway... I understand in order to head off in the correct direction, it is critical to determine the correct questions. And those questions are always God-honoring or Christ-honoring. If you ask a question about Christ, for example, if you ask, why is he afraid of his own death, that is a profoundly heretical, blasphemous question. Don't ask something like that. You're so wrong, it's hopeless to get right from something that heretical. So answer, always ask the God-honoring, Christ-honoring questions. As an example, I just gave you one, but so-called biblical scholars have wasted their lives answering why Christ was, physically, or was afraid to physically die on the cross. He wasn't afraid. He's omnipotent, infinite God. Fear would be sin. It would be lack of knowledge. He's omniscient. He has no lack of knowledge. So you ask a question like that, uh, again, it's heretical, and it's certain to end in a, what's the word I want, a stupid answer. You're going to be in the ditch. So train yourselves. We should all be this way to, to loathe the invalid. Don't pursue the absurd premises. <sighs> So, to shorten the introduction here, we have a whole bunch of unanswered questions. Uh, probably a hundred or better just from the last three or four weeks. And by we, I mean me. Um, so, I intend to devote today to answering at least one of those. Maybe two, probably one. That's pretty good. I'm kidding. Not really. That's a fake kidding. I probably will answer only one or two today. I actually wrote 6,000 words here, and I know how many exactly I answered. Would you like to guess? When I wrote this, I was really, really, um, what's the word, optimistic. How many do you think I answered? Ready, set, go. Yes. That's not bad for me. That's a lot better than two. Significant. <laughs> okay. Where should we start? I know everyone's favorite will be Bell's Theorem. Um, I did that for Ishtar last week. You should have seen the reaction. It was hilarious. 
Actually, I just want to read into the record for the Internet audience the mathematics of resurrection. We talked about it in the, um, in the after class a lot, and I, I intended to do it. I just ran out of time. But I'll do it today since there is some continuity between this week and last week. For example, how much information must be collected and transferred for one, just one body resurrection? I want you to consider the mathematical size of the information required to resurrect one body. You can pick a child, if you will. How much information? And I'm merely limiting this question to one human body and not the perfect humanity that is Jesus Christ. Notice how I say perfect humanity. Never ask a question that in any way infers that Christ's humanity was not perfect. If you've done that, what have you done? Heresy, blasphemy, never do it. Don't allow the thought into your head. Into the ditch you go. I'm not asking about God himself, the perfect humanity of Jesus God. And hopefully, while I've been doing this, you've begun to add the pieces. How much it it would take to resurrect, to gather the information for one human body resurrection. You can use your phone calculators. Most of you are using your phones during the lecture anyway. I'm assuming you're doing mathematical equations. And I'm very proud of you. If you're texting your friends, at least you're not driving and I'm providing a public service. (laughs) Old people laugh at texting and driving jokes. They do. (laughs) Young people are mad. It's really fun. (laughs) Resurrection is not just limited to the physical. So go ahead and accumulate what you think is the amount of physical information to to resurrect the body. But you know there's a living soul here, the breath of God. How much information is in the living soul? I have two things to deal with here. I don't have it. The one who resurrects has it. So everything has to be found. All the pieces, all that information has to be gathered. It has to be restored. It has to be reassembled. It has to be reanimated. The living soul has to be located. Where is the living soul? We Finding the body itself and all the information that that body has to have and put all of that information back in its form and then to go find the living soul, know where the living soul is. How many living souls are there? There's a lot. Where are they? How are they sorted? And that living soul has to be brought to the body and the body to the soul and the soul has to be implanted and the machine and the body-soul system has to be fully functional. How much power is necessary, how much information has to be accounted for, organized, and put in the proper order in order for this to occur. And the Bible says this process is nearly instant, which if that's true, could it be superluminal, which is faster than the speed of light. And if it is superluminal, we are back to Bell's theorem. See how I did that. The Bible, again, says this is an, an instantaneous process, 2 Corinthians 15.2. Repeating it in a different form, how much power does it take to resurrect? How much information has to be accumulated and gathered 
and organized. How many cells do you have in your body? How many of them are bad? I know how many of mine are bad. Lots of them. Getting worse. But in order to resurrect me, every soul cell has to be put back into its positioning, right? And it has to be what? Fixed. First we gather it and then we fix it. How many thoughts have I had in my almost 64 years? How many thoughts? How many thoughts have I had today? Every one of them has to be found. Information cannot be destroyed. It's a fundamental principle of quantum physics. My thoughts are never destroyed. Cannot be. So, who has, if I am gone, if I, my body is physically dead, my soul, of course, is still functioning, but where am I? Who has all this information? What distances does it have to travel? How far does the information travel to get to the body? Again, how fast does it travel? Superliminal. How does the information even come into existence in the first place as much as where is it? Who can do this? One body. Who must do it? Who is able to resurrect? My obvious point when we consider the mathematics, the scope of one single solitary resurrection, it becomes clear who can do it. Who has to do it? No one else can possibly do it. So when you read about or hear about somebody, and take the Bible, take Elisha, put himself over the top of a child and resurrected that child with his mantle being of primary importance, or the talit, if you wish, the talit. Who resurrected the child? Did Elijah resurrect the child? He can't possibly do it. He's a finite being. All resurrections must come from God. He is the only one with the ability. He's the only one who can process the information. That's why I read Psalms with the baby dedication about the mind of God. David understood the thoughts of God. He just blew. He went, wow. Just to begin to think what you think about. What you have to consider for this all to function. Only Creator God can resurrect. And so when Jesus Christ in John 2.19 declares that he's going to resurrect himself, that's what he says. John 2.19, I will resurrect myself. Important that you know that. That is infinity. He is infinity discussing an infinite, I can't even say it, an infinite process. Infinite God is talking about resurrecting infinite God. Himself. One more point, Resurrection 13.3. This is my fun one that we're in the midst of, and we're going back as times go by here in the next couple of weeks. I asked, who resurrected the Antichrist? Did Satan resurrect the Antichrist? Did the Antichrist resurrect himself? Uh, Resurrection 13, I'm sorry, Revelation 13.3? Who could possibly resurrect the Antichrist? If God did it, and only God could do it, why did he do it? What does this have to do with the two trees? I'll make trees. I have, I am, an un, most of my artwork goes for a lot of money. I'll put a branch in there. Uh, I think that's a hundred bucks right there. I should stop. 
I've seen worse go for a lot more. So have you. We had an elephant that, that painted up here, went for a lot of money. I'm better than the elephant. No, no, maybe not. <laughs> That's up to dispute, apparently. We'll convene a committee. That's what churches do. <laughs> what does the resurrection of the Antichrist... How many trees... Oh, I should read that really fast. I'm getting off the chart here, but let me just do it. Because it's cool. We had two trees in the garden, right? And now we have a tree in the New Jerusalem. And I have to find it really fast. Here it is. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the, midst, in the middle of the street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. So we know, Revelation 22, that the tree of life is there. Tree of life. This, of course, is the tree of surely die, or I'll call it death. Surely die, we have to ask, is that the second death, or is that physical death? Surely die... And the word actually is die, you will really die. So there's two dies there. But the tree of death does not seem to be in Revelation 22. It seems to only be the tree of life. Why is that? Where is the tree of death? And what does the resurrection of the Antichrist have to do with the tree of death or the tree of life in this matter? What does it have to do with free will? <clears throat> what does it have to do with behold, the man has become a type of one of us, which is, as you know, a significant thing said of Adam. Adam had become, has become a type of one of the triune Godhead. Which one? Obviously, he became a type of Christ. It says so in Romans 5. And perhaps you were thinking, how many answers have I given you so far? One. I really did. I gave you one. Thank you for noticing over here in the more holy section of the congregation. Okay. <laughs> You're thinking maybe he didn't get enough sleep last night, and that's probably true. But people like it when I'm kind of, what's the word I want? Insane. It's pretty significant, the one answer that I gave you. Only God can resurrect. He is the resurrection and the life. It's singular. He's the only one that can do it. When Christ says that I am the only one who can resurrect and I am the only source of life, he's saying to you that he is creator God himself. John 11. Okay, a few more questions here along this line. I got a letter, a real letter. Looky here. You think it's just email. No, tangible proof that I did not forge this, maybe. Those of you on the Internet, everything you send me, the, the class here believes that I forge it, to pretend that I have a vast Internet audience. But this is from Sally from Joplin, Missouri. And we know Sally. Hi, Sally. Sally uh, says that uh, we don't have to send her things because she's now watching us on TubeFace. And uh, thank you for TubeFace, she says. It makes me feel like I am right there. I love it. So that's for supper, Dave who some people think does not exist either. There's a guy that's really funny. What is he? Uh, uh, think spot, right? 
He sent me another joke today. I need to read him in. He's getting offended that I'm not reading his jokes, I think. But he's, uh, he's very gifted. As most of the... Huh? Oh, okay, yeah. I, obviously, my jokes are... I mean, my goodness. But no, he's uh, really, really a bright man, we think. Uh, in other words, he could be anybody on the Internet. It could be a 12-year-old kid somewhere. I don't know who it is. But he seems to be very... Uh, in tune to how we think around here, which is a curse for him. Anyway, Sally says, I have a question. Will there be marriage and children in the millennium? Not heaven, in the millennium. So she's talking about the uh, last thousand years, right? There are seven 1,000-year periods. God says to you in, the, in Peter, listen, you guys, Steve, learn one thing. The Time that which humanity is on the earth is based on a 7,000 year period, which is based on the creation seven or the seven days of creation. All sevens refer to the first seven. So Sally says, I have a question. Are we going to answer it? Uh, Will there be marriage and children in the millennium, the last thousand years of the 7,000 years? Also, will everyone who died before the age of accountability in the millennium have a 100 years to, uh, to, I can't read this word, sorry Sally, to invoke, I think, their free will to choose God or evil. Thank you so much for all that you do. God bless Sally from Joplin, Missouri. Sally is asking again about the millennium, and I could answer Sally's question. She had a couple of them there. Or maybe I could do something else. I could throw in a small question just for you to make you and Sally think about the lake of fire. How does this relate to Sally's questions? Hopefully I'll resolve it for you. Those who believe in the name of Jesus Christ will receive an immortal body. Those who believe in the name of Jesus Christ will receive an immortal body. That is without dispute. Those who willfully reject Jesus Christ and choose to hate their very creator, they hate Christ, what kind of resurrected body do they get? In other words, what is the difference between the New Jerusalem body of the saved and the lake of fire body? Because there is a resurrection of the dead, and they are recombined with their bodies. How does their body look? How old is their body? You thought about the body of those who are in the lake of fire. We have two resurrections. We have re- well, Actually, we have five, but I'll just break it into two for now. We have resurrection to life and resurrection to death, or the second death. Revelation 20, 11 through 15. Hopefully you can see Sally's inquiries juxtapositioned now with the resurrection of the dead. She's asking about the millennium, but I'm just processing it towards the end of the age, or if you will, the restoration of all things. What kind of physical body structure is necessary for those who have chosen to hate God? And they're in the lake of fire. Why do they have physical bodies at the lake of fire? Some of you have begun to mouth the words torment. Is the purpose of the physical body to allow for physical processes? I'm going to pivot now. 
Back to Sally. Will there be marriage and children in the thousand-year messianic kingdom? Again, there are seven one-thousand-year segments. Peter says, learn this one thing. There are seven one-thousand-year segments. If you got that, you've got a chance here. If you don't have that, well, too bad for us or you. Will there be marriage and children in the 1,000-year Messianic kingdom? Here comes an answer. Revelation 20, verse 9. Yes, in that last 1,000-year period, there will be marriage and children, multiplication of people. How many people go into the millennium? Those who survive the tribulation and are saved will go into the, in the, into the millennium. How many are they? Probably just millions. How many will be at the end of the thousand years? Billions and billions, uncountable. They will be like the sand. And how many of those people, to answer Sally's question, those billions and billions will be under percent, I'm sorry, under the age of 100? What percent will be under the age of 100? It's a thousand year period. How many of them will be less than 100 years old? Why did Sally pick 100 years old? Because Sally knows something. She knows there's 100 years here involved. I'm telling you that 90% is probably 95%. I bet you it's 99% of all the people who are alive in the millennium, at the end of the millennium, and the death is greatly reduced. There still is death. There's sacrifice of animals at the temple in the millennium. That's in Ezekiel. Why does he do that? Does he, he's on the throne. Why does he kill? How are, why are animals killed? How do I kill an animal in front of the Creator God? Does anything ever die in Christ's uh, presence? I, I don't think I want to be the sacrifice guy. I won't. I might be Jewish, half Jewish on my mother's side, but definitely not in the Levite or the Aaronic lineage, so I don't have to do this. But it just occurs to me that if I had the job, can't kill this thing. I get the blood out of it, somehow it doesn't kill it. What does sacrifice look like in front of Jesus Christ himself? No one is ever recorded of dying next to Christ in the proximity of Christ. He's on the throne. So animal sacrifice occurs, but how does it work? It's certainly not what we think. And it is a memorial. It's not for sacrifice because all the prophecies have been fulfilled. It's like communion. Communion is a memorial not a salvation method, even though it has an element to where we are taking an oath. How do I know that 95 to 99% of all the people, the billions and billions of people at the end of the millennium will be under the age of 100? Because I have today. How many people are alive today? Billions and billions and billions. How many of them are under the age of 100? It's just math. You know, there may be a couple of guys in Kansas that don't qualify, but they're not very many. By and large, we're all under a hundred. Now, there will be some who, who are going to be 1,000 years old because they are the ones that went into the millennium and they will not die. But their children, on the other hand, are subject to being able to choose. See, we start out the Bible with choosing, we end the Bible with choosing, and then pretty soon, there's no need to choose anymore. 
in the sense that everyone has chosen and everyone will continue to choose the way they chose. Does that make any sense at all? If it does, I feel greatly sadness for you. You're thinking like me. What is this 100 age thing? How much death is in the Messianic kingdom? How many die at age 100? What causes them to die? Lots of people die at age 100 in the millennium. Why? They, I'm going to answer another question. They refuse to believe that Jesus Christ is who he says he is. He is sitting on the throne. They don't care. They don't believe it. So what kills these people? He gives them a hundred years to believe, and then that's it. I always imagine what it would be like to be 99-364, and I still won't believe. And my friend Fred was 95-364 yesterday. What does it take to make somebody believe in Jesus Christ? Proof, evidence, physical evidence? No, it's clearly a spiritual issue. They die from unbelief. Unbelief in what? Who will not believe and not believe what? Again, Christ is on his throne in Jerusalem. So I answered some questions there, didn't I? I said that people will die in the millennium. I said there will be billions and billions of them. I said that there would be a lot of them under the age of 100. I'm, I'm answering like crazy here. I should do more of this answering thing. It's easy as cake. It's piece of pie. It's getting your ducks in a barrel. It's shooting a row of fish. Winner, winner, chicken lunch. And I should do it more often. But I won't. I must keep the expectations as low as possible. Okay. Where do we go next? Answering more questions. We'll go to Isaiah 53, 1 through 6. So you can race me there, but I am a professional. And I know where I'm going, sort of. You ready? Here it is. Famous. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant. And as a root out of dry ground, he has no form or comeliness. If you have a picture in your house of Jesus Christ, and he is a Caucasian male with long hair, and he looks very attractive, throw it out, it's junk. And it says so. He's ugly. Now, why did God make himself unattractive to you and me physically? Because he knows us, doesn't he? The Antichrist makes himself beautiful. God makes himself indis- uh, what, what's the word? Uh, nondescript. And when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. Notice what God's doing here. Uh, the opposite of our political or our Hollywood process. What's the joke? Politics is, is uh, beauty pageants for ugly people. Okay? But the more attractive you are, the more control power you are able to accumulate. How much control power do I have? Not much. Uh-oh. I own a mirror. I say that a lot. 
I used to have a joke that you could tell how attractive the pastor was by the front two rows of every congregation. You'd come in and look at the front two rows, and if those were attractive people, then the pastor was, I'm not in good shape. This is not good news for me. Where am I? There is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. That's what I want to focus on. He is a man of sorrows. This is Christ. A man of sorrows is his name. And he has grief. God grieves. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken. Notice, yet. In other words, they're saying he bore our griefs and carried our sorrows, but we still didn't like him. We still disrespected him. Smitten by God. That means struck down and killed by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. By his stripes we are healed. And we, like dumb sheep, have gone astray. Why are we like dumb sheep? Because we are. I added dumb. That's what we are. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Okay? Obviously, this is the famous man of sorrows passage. Jesus Christ, the second person of the triune Godhead, is the man of sorrows. He is the man of grieving. And immediately we should compare, I'm sorry, we should be stunned by verse 4, smitten by God and afflicted. And we should compare that to John 10:18, where Christ says, no one can take my life from me. No one. I lay it down myself. I, I, I have the power to lay it down because it takes power. You can't kill him. He's God. But he says, I can do it, and I, can, I have the power to take it up again. And I've made this comment. I lay it down. I lift it up. I lay it down. I lift it up. He can do it as much as he wants. I always ask the, the apostles, when they heard him say that, what would they ask him? Well, can you do it to me? And I always wondered... And it isn't in the Bible. But did he do that to his apostles? Because those men went and did incredible things. They had absolutely no fear of death. Did he separate the body from the soul and put it back together again? And do it again and do it again and do it again and do it again. How, how did he get rid of the fear of death from them? How much fear of death will you have, will I have, when our body and soul are reunited? And we go, oh, this physical death thing wasn't really that big a deal. What would we be like if we got to go back knowing that physical death was just... We don't, you, don't, you don't even need anesthetic to put us back together again. Superluminal. I keep saying things like superluminal because I want you to know that we're getting into Bell's theorem. You can't escape. And you will like it, or I will make you like it. I'm just kidding. Actually, you will like it. I, I'm confident of that. It's very cool. But he says, no one can take my life from me, but it says God killed him. Jesus is speaking about his life when he says this. No one can take it from me. He's saying, I'm unkillable. 
So let's ask a question. How much power is required to kill the omnipotent God? Who can kill the omnipotent God? Who out there wants the job? I'm just asking. Back to Isaiah 53, 4. Yet we esteemed him stricken, killed by God, struck dead by God. He, of course, is God. The Word made flesh. I could read it this way. Yet we esteemed God stricken, killed by himself. That is the Christ-honoring way to read it. You see? If you're reading that thinking that God killed Christ because God is different from Christ. I said it last week. I get so tired of hearing God, 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 and never Jesus Christ. All the cults say God. They have the same God as us. They do not. The God of the Bible is different from their God. They say it and we say it and no one says Christ anymore. It's hardly ever spoken as the Bible says, Revelation 3.16. I'm ranting again just like last week. Esteemed, we have esteemed him stricken, is defined as respected or believed. So that would be like this. Yet we believed him stricken, killed by God and afflicted. You see, that is the God-honoring way to read that. Even though he bore our griefs and carried our sorrows, we believed him stricken, killed by God and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions. Have the God or the Christ honoring position at all times. I don't wish to spend time to reconcile John 10:18 with Isaiah 53, 1 through 6 today. I'll do it in the weeks to come. Other than to say, again, repeat it, have no dishonoring view of Jesus Christ. Interpret Isaiah 53 within the parameters, within the framework of the deity of Christ, and you'll be fine. Doing so will always reconcile, always confirm or conform Scripture to Scripture. Answer the questions. Why don't people believe Jesus Christ is God? Why don't they believe Jesus Christ is always good? Never, ever anything but God and never, ever anything but perfect goodness. Why don't people believe this? Why is this so hard to do? Okay. That was Sally's fault. Sorry for the diversion. What I'm actually going to pursue now is the typology of Adam. I've got a few minutes to finish this. The sorrows of Adam, Genesis 3.17. Adam is also called, I have two people called a man of sorrows. One is the first Adam, or the first man, and the other is the last Adam, Christ, uh, or the last man, the last federal head is what this is. Both of them are called uh, man, men of sorrows. Adam in Genesis 3.17, Christ in Isaiah 53, right? Adam, a man of sorrow. And he's a man of sorrows, Adam is, every time he eats of the earth. Eats of the earth. It says the ground, but the word is interchangeable. And so I can say perfectly fine, eats of the earth. In addition to Adam being a man of sorrow, every time he eats of the earth, Eve is a, is a uh, is a woman of sorrow. She has sorrow. I'll put Eve instead of a woman. But every time, every childbirth, oops, 
So I have sorrow for Eve on childbirth. Do you remember this question? Sorrow for Adam when he eats of the earth. So the obvious question there is why? Why is this here? To repeat from a couple of weeks ago. Eve has, I'm sorry, Adam has sorrow, Eve has sorrow, but Satan does not have sorrow. No sorrow for Satan. He has no sorrow. Satan is never described as having any sorrow. God has sorrow. The wicked do not have sorrow. Why don't the wicked have sorrow? You would think they would have some sorrow. They're in the lake of fire. It isn't going really well there. Why don't they have regrets? They have no sorrow. That is a characteristic of the wicked. No sorrow. Ask why. Ask why Satan has no sorrow while I keep going. Adam in sorrow all the days of his life when he eats. Why? Adam eating of the cursed earth will be in sadness all of his life. How often did he eat? How long did he live in sorrow? The Bible tells us he lived 930 years outside of the garden. How long was he in the garden? Maybe maybe that's a nice thousand year period here. Some would say it conforms perfectly with Christ. So you'll see 33s and 30s and 70s and all of this stuff to add up to 930. Genesis 5.4, he begat sons and daughters, Adam did. How many sons and daughters did Adam have? And every time Adam ate, he had great sadness. And every time Eve had a child, great sadness. Not pain, sadness. She had pain, but the sadness is different. I ended... Uh, I asked at the end of the lecture 278, what specifically causes the sorrow of Adam? Why does Adam weep? And why does Eve likewise cry and grieve? I have this grief in all three. Christ, who is God, Adam, who is a type of Christ, and Eve has also this sadness, this mourning. And if Adam is a type of of the man of sorrows, and he is, then all we have to do is ask, what makes Jesus Christ weep? Because he does. What causes it? I submit that Adam groans and mourns in a very similar manner as Jesus Christ himself, though Adam is just this little tiny portrait, a small example. He's the type, Christ is called the anti-type in theological terms, meaning the fullness or the fulfillment the massiveness versus the small. Where in Scripture does Jesus God express his sorrow and shed tears? See, we should go there first, right? The most famous is John 11.35 at the tomb of Lazarus. Jesus wept, right? Always is a question in jeopardy. The Jews who were there, uh, they, they came to proclaim. They're shouting out the supremacy of death. They're professional mourners, those Jews that were there. They come specifically. They're hired to mourn at Jewish funerals, and they cry and weep, and they proclaim death to be permanent. There is no solution to it. It is supreme. It is sovereign. And they say something foolish, these professional mourners, when they notice that Christ is weeping. 
they think those tears are for Lazarus. I probably should read that. I'm still moving along. Notice how fast I'm going. I could go this fast every week, you're thinking. <sighs> Here it is. Uh, they said, they, okay, therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews that came with her weeping, the professionals, the ones who are saying, death cannot be defeated, we should all cry, this is extinguishment, this is annihilation, this is cessation of existence, hopelessness is all we've got. When Jesus saw both the Mary come and he saw the weeping of these professional Jews who do this for a living, by the way, oh, yay, people cheer because... Do you ever listen to people, professional orators on the radio or television news commentators, specifically how often they say, by the way? Oh, it's constant. That's right. It's really annoying. Have I made you annoyed by it? Good. I'm trying. Nowhere near my limit. I won't divulge my limit. I'll just tell you that I'm nowhere near it. I never seem to reach it. Do you know that? Because I thinking ahead. Okay. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, they're gathered around her, those people who are, he groaned in his spirit and was troubled and he said, where have you laid him? Does he know where they laid him? He's omniscient God. Don't ever think, oh, he asked that because he didn't know. If you do ask that, hit yourself really hard. Concussive. You deserve it. They said to him, Lord, come and see. He asked the question for their sake. That's what he does. Whenever God asks a question, be suspicious. Jesus wept, verse 35. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him? Do you think that was smart? No. They say something very foolish here. They notice Jesus' silence. And they say, ooh, see how he loved, 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 loved. Notice what they say. What are they implying by loved? Past tense. There's no more. See how he loved him. And some of them said, could not this man? How smart are these guys so far? How aware are they? Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man, Lazarus, from dying? Then Jesus again, groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. God is mourning. Notice that. But not for Lazarus. God rejoices for Lazarus. He knows where Lazarus is. He's he's the one that has Lazarus. He has everybody's infinite God. Lazarus is a believer. He's on the tree of life side. He's a saved man. Jesus is in mourning for the Jews who proclaimed death to be predominant. See how he loved him. Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also kept this man, Lazarus, from dying? It's a rhetorical question, isn't it? The inference is no, Christ has no power over death. Death is unstoppable. Death again, sovereign. 
the end, the absolute extinguishing of your being. Could not this man, this man, they don't even know who he is. They think Jesus Christ is just a man. He is a man, but he's a perfect man. And he is absolute, infinite deity simultaneously. And the deity has authority over the humanity, in case you were wondering. Like all other men, they say. That's what they infer. Obviously, that is exactly what they think, along with who today? The majority of the world today thinks that Jesus Christ is just a man. Most churches today, they are confused as to the Godhood of Jesus Christ. And Christ groans over that. He is surrounded by unbelief and he weeps because, you see, Christ is omniscient and therefore outside of time which means he sees all things in the present. That's why he's the I am. He sees the lake of fire, the second death, and he sees everyone who chooses unbelief. He does not mourn and groan for Lazarus. He loves Lazarus. He rejoices over Lazarus. He moans and groans for those who say, see how he loved Lazarus. Lazarus is not extinguished. Information cannot be destroyed, Bell's theorem. Jesus Christ has the power to resurrect and restore Lazarus. He is the only one. He is the God of Lazarus. Notice how I said that. He is the God of Lazarus because Lazarus still is. He never describes himself as was the God of anyone. He's always the I am, the is God. Never the I was or the I will be. So back to Adam. Adam in sorrow all the days of his life, every day, now has something to do with how Christ is in sorrow at the tomb here. But Adam is in sorrow also. He is grieving like Christ in a small way when Adam eats of the earth. Somehow this is explained at John 11, also Matthew 26, 34 through 46, that's for the Internet, and at Luke 23, 26 through 38, and at Hebrews 1, 5, 1 through 11. Get to that in the weeks to come. All of those are very mysterious, very complicated passages. Read them all the time knowing that Jesus Christ is never not God. If you don't read it with Jesus Christ is never, like, never not God, you will blow it there. The first Adam makes an undeceived free will choice to disobey the commandment of God. Genesis 2.17. Ha. Let me repeat that. The first Adam makes an undeceived free will choice to disobey the commandment of God. Undeceived. Timothy tells us he was not deceived. Adam's decision that he made was not one of unbelief. Does that make sense? When Adam made his decision to disobey God, he still was believing. In other words, he was not one of unbelief. That is in the definition of being deceived. In contrast to the woman, the woman does commit her sin in unbelief. Both are sins of disobedience. The woman, however, carries with it the element that God is a liar. Because that's what Satan says. God is a liar. And she believes Satan. So she no longer believes that God isn't a liar. She believes God is a liar. She's deceived. But she believes God is a liar. And if God isn't a liar, that ultimately accuses God to be the origin of evil. Because lying is evil. 
And God is the liar. He therefore is evil. He just hides it. That's what Satan says there. And Eve believes that. So she is now in unbelief. Adam never believes that, but he still commits a sin of disobedience. So Adam is now filled with sorrow when he eats of the cursed earth. The woman is overcome with sadness when she gives birth. But there's a difference between the two. Did I make that clear? This is an unbelief sin. Now, she confesses her belief, and she is named Eve because she confesses. And she says, I was deceived. I, I, was, I was in unbelief, but I am no longer in unbelief. And she is named the mother of living. But Adam, not in unbelief when he sins. That is a profound difference. Again, Timothy bears that out. 2.14 Both are sins of disobedience. Don't misunderstand. Make no mistake. But now, because of this distinction, Adam is filled with sorrow when he eats of the cursed earth. Eve is filled with sadness when she gives birth. So Adam is mourning for all of the earth. Eve is mourning for all of humanity. And that at first glance might seem to be the same, but it's not the same. Remember that Adam, one of the things he does is he names every single animal there is. He names them all. And he doesn't group them. He names them individually. He names every animal. That requires intimate knowledge of each one. Communion. Time. He's, he's with them. Adam saw the perfect system and he also experienced and saw the destruction of the perfect system. And that is something that he caused. He caused the destruction. So he saw the perfect system and he saw what caused the destruction of it, and what happened here. That's Romans 5. Innocent animals are now suffering death. The traceable cause is Adam's choice. A side question, really fast. Did animals begin to eat one another before the flood? Yes or no? Raise your hand. Never raise your hand. Did animals begin to tear each other apart prior to the flood? Did man eat animals before the flood? Raise your hand, never raise your hand. They're not the same question. Both could be true. Both could be false. One could be true. One could be false. Which one is which one? Did that make any sense to you? Good. No one thought so. In other words, it could be true that animals began to eat one another before the flood. It could be false that man did not eat animals before the flood. Both of those could be false. It could be true that the man ate animals before the flood, but the animals didn't tear each other apart before the flood. Do you follow that? It made you like me. You decide which one is true, which one is false. Are they both true? Are they both false? Or one true, one false? Which one is true? Which one is false? If one is true and one is false. Play it back on the Internet. Yes, exactly. Who's on first is exactly. Actually, we did that. Me and my brother did that a bunch of times. We got actually pretty good at it. Eve, though, has a different issue, doesn't she? Every human, every baby, we had baby dedication today, every baby will now repeat her process. By that I mean what will happen to them. Remember, she went into unbelief. 
not in unbelief. Every baby will repeat her process. All of us, how many of you, you can raise your hands this time, how many of you were, are, have been deceived by Satan? I will raise my hand. Those of you who are not raising your hand because you're afraid to raise your hand are lying. Because you are all deceived by Satan. But never raise your hand. <laughs> she was deceived by Satan. Deception is unbelief. In order to be deceived, you have to stop believing something about the character of God. Either who he is or how he is. His goodness or his godhood. So... Only Adam, of everyone who has ever been created, was undeceived by Satan at some point. What about Job, you ask? How many of you are asking about Job? Notice that Satan proposes that Job will declare God to be evil if Satan is allowed to attack Job. Right? He will not believe in you. He only likes you because you're good to him. I start taking taking him apart. He's going to hate you, God. Just like everybody else. That's Satan's premise, right? And that's not all that much different than Eve, wouldn't you say? Look at the two. Look at what he does to Job. Look at what he does to Eve. And you'll see that they are quite similar. Anyway, Eve sees her exact unbelief repeated, repeated, and repeated. And she will watch many, many of her children harden in unbelief. How many children did she have? How old was she? You're going to give her outlives her husband like most of you? He went 930. Where'd she go? 1500? How much of that is childbearing? Half? How many twins? Multiple births. How many children did she have? How fertile was a perfect human being? First two, Adam and, I'm sorry, um, Cain and Abel were twins. How many twins did she, how many people did she give birth to? How many children? How many of them hardened in unbelief and die the second death? Because the first death is just physical. The second death is the permanent spiritual death, if you will. Do not fear physical death. Fear the one, the judge of all, Jesus Christ, John 5:22, Matthew 12:4 through 5, Revelation 19:15 through 21, Revelation 20:11 through 15. Don't worry, I'll, we'll get to it next week or the weeks to come. Fear the one who has the authority to send your soul to the place of destruction. Eve would know that each baby barn could descend into wickedness and that she was the traceable cause. Do you see that? And every childbirth would make her weep. Make no mistake, all of us are personally accountable. When you're at the great white throne, don't be blaming Eve. That won't work. Ineffectual. Don't blame your parents. Won't work. Stratagem not not going to be not not prevailing. Lastly, everyone's favorite word for today: Genesis three eleven and twelve. Um, I'm going to have to go to Bible number two. The reason I have to is because Bible number one, the pages are all shot. I wrote all over them and made a mess. The duct tape has failed. The book is 25 years old now, and it looks too much like me. This is a great mysterious passage. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree 
where I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave to me, she gave me of the tree and I did eat. Now, what does that mean? That's Adam's response. The woman you gave to me, she gave to me and I ate. Do you think that he is blaming that woman? He is not. This is a type of Christ. He is not blaming her. What does it mean? I can tell you immediately, it does not mean that Adam is blaming Eve. That, sadly, is the common view in the church. Why does the church continually seize upon the most thoughtless, shallow of, exp- of explanations, always ignoring the typology, the Christ-centric view? Why does the church always do it this way? Why? What's the answer? Because we're stupid. That's why. And we love being stupid. We're addicted to stupid. Anyway, ask, why did God give the woman to the man? Was it because he was lonely? He's naming animals. He's got a full day. He's got something to do. Is it your view that he gave the woman to the man because he was lonely? You can make the case for fruitful and multiply, but I don't think you can make the case for lonely. Note the wedding symbolism. Did God do this because the man was so despairing over his loneliness? No. Option two. Did God do this because he wanted to enable the man to learn something about himself? In other words, learn something about God, learn something about Jesus Christ that the animals could not teach him. Pick the Christ-centric alternative here. Adam, an amazing portrait of Christ, is married to his bride here. This is the one that God gives the bride away. The Father gives the bride away to the groom here. Adam, Ephesians 5, through 32, has now a new responsibility. He's a husband. His responsibility is, and it says, 5... 22 through 32 of Ephesians is all about Adam and Eve. And therefore all about Christ. He has a new responsibility to love his wife as he loves his own body. Because she is his own body. To never leave her. To be one flesh. To be joined. To be inseparable. To protect her at all costs. What does it say Christ does for us? Gives his life for his bride. That is what that marriage ceremony was for Adam and the woman. To give his life for her as Christ gave his life for the church. Ephesians 5, 32 is uncanny in its application to Adam and Eve. He says, listen, you gave her to me. You walked her down the aisle and you turned her over to me. What was my job? That's what he's saying. My job was to give my life for her. And now he's in sorrow the rest of that life, and so is she. For different reasons, next week, we will do more of Bell's Theorem. Invite your friends.